Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. What is school's out for the summer? <laughs> Never heard that. Have you heard of a singer called Alice Cooper? Just about. Rachel had made a note that maybe we should start this episode with Ed singing School's Out for Summer, but you, you have no awareness of that Alice Cooper classic. When did it come out, School's Out for Summer? In the 70s. Well, OK, it's before my time. But you were born in the 60s. <sighs> I blame Gordon Brown. <laughs> Right, should we move on, Jeff? Yes, yes, we absolutely should. We're slap bang in the middle of summer and we've got another treat for our listeners, haven't we, Jeff? Yes, we have a treat. But let me tell you something. It is a healthy, nourishing, sustainable treat. We are with Henry Dimbleby, who you might know as the co-founder of the healthy fast food chain, Leon. Uh, but he's also a former government advisor penning the National Food Strategy. And he is the author of a new book called Ravenous how to get ourselves and our planet into shape. And and this book is a sort of game of two halves, Jeff. The first part is all about why the food that we eat isn't necessarily very healthy and why we have less choice than we might think about the food we eat. And it's particularly about ultra-processed foods. And the second part is about our food system and our planet. And so he tries to tackle both of these issues together. Yes, he is a real expert on this. He's spent years thinking about all of these Issues. He's also uplifting about the fact that changing our food system could be transformative for our health, for social inequality, for the climate crisis too. And he gets onto your favourite topic of conversation, I think. Yeah, he talks about the egg sandwich that I buy on trains and at shops. You love sandwich chat. I do. I love. There's nothing like like more than a sandwich chat, which you wouldn't know about me necessarily. Uh, and I thought he just remade the case for. The make your own sandwich shop. Really, because in my, from my memory, he, he didn't seem that wild about that idea. I know, but the thing you've got to understand about me, Jeff, is that you hear what you want to hear. I think uh, on the on the old make your own sandwich, I think I do. I mean, lots of people have said what a rubbish idea it is, and I've not been put off. Which there's a tenacity there, isn't there? Yeah, determination. Yes. And and just before we hear the conversation, I'll say, if you have any thoughts about these summer episodes or anything you might want us to cover in the new school year in September, get in touch with us via our email, which is reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com, or you can find us on social media, or we have a website, cheerfulpodcast.com. Here's Henry. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So let's now start the conversation uh, with Henry Dimbleby. He has written a book with Jemima Lewis called Ravenous, How to Get Ourselves and Our Planet into Shape. He is the co-founder of healthy fast food chain Leon, which was launched in 2004. He was the government's food czar, a position he left in March 2023 after having published the National Food Strategy. Henry, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Let's start in a slightly strange place, which is you got knocked over in the street in Tokyo um, (laughs) and landed on a piece of scaffolding pole. Um, But 
you know, apart from the fact you had a nasty accident, uh, there's a sort of interesting sort of lesson about food as a result of this experience, isn't there? Yes. So I think that one of the things we're so stuck in our time and our space, and actually culture changes all the time. I fell over on this scaffolding pole. It felt like getting a kind of body punch from George Foreman. It was completely knocked the wind out of me. And then anyway, I thought, well, fine, I'll go out. I felt better. I went out for dinner, woke up in the middle of the night, kind of inflated like a rubber dinghy. I couldn't bend. So I kind of shimmied out of bed sideways and picked up my phone and and ended up in hospital. And it was like living in a completely different world. So I was in hospital in Japan for three days. It was one of the most, it was like going to a spa every morning. (laughs) (laughs) Every morning you'd be served breakfast of, you know, a little miso soup and some pickled vegetables and fish and then you have a bento box for lunch i mean it was extraordinary it just doesn't exactly sound like the nhs does it but but the point is people think that this japanese food culture is kind of god-given it's descended upon them from heaven and it's just always been like that and that is absolutely not true so the japanese food culture is completely created by the state and it started in the meiji restoration at the end of the 19th century when the Japanese opened up for the first time. At the time, they had a very meagre diet. And the emperor said, we've got to do something about this. If we're going to compete in the modern world, we have to get physically fitter. Then he got the army cooks to create a whole new set of recipes for the army. So, for example, katsu curry, which we think of quite a typical uh, Japanese dish, was stolen from the British Navy. It was fried chicken with a curry sauce from India. They then got these army cooks to go on the radio and to broadcast, and they produced books of recipes. And then by law in Japan, they restricted fast food. It was hard to get fast food outlets. In schools, every child gets a properly cooked lunch every day. The point is, we could do that. We could decide to have good food in hospitals. We could decide to have good food in schools. We could decide to do that stuff. But we don't because we have this kind of ideological idea that somehow deciding to feed our children well is too much intervention from the state and we should let the market do, do its business. And it's just worth saying, you know, if you are somebody who says, well, you know, I don't want that intervention, what is the alternative? The NHS thinks that the cost of type 2 diabetes alone by 2035, that's one diet-related condition, will be more than all cancers put together currently. The reason I wrote the book is because I don't think people realise quite how much the food system is responsible for the two of the biggest things facing Western society, our health and the destruction of the environment. And, And it's a call, really, to say we can choose to do better. And what do you think lies underneath that resistance? I don't know if it's um unique to the UK or in common with other Western countries? Is it media hysteria? Is it something different? We coined the phrase pretty much, the, well, the, the phrase came into common usage, the nanny state in this country in, in the 60s, early 60s. We don't want to tell people what to do. We don't want the state getting too involved in people's lives, what they eat, what they smoke. You know, we're seeing it a bit with vaping at the moment. Don't want to tell people what to do. And I think What is interesting is we did a lot of work when we did the food strategy on what citizens' views were on this. And in this area, the politicians are completely out of step with citizens. Citizens are fed up. 
When you talk about banning advertising, for example, on junk food, which is something that has been kicked down the road again now till 2025 by this government, that is a wildly popular policy. And so people see it, but for some reason, this kind of nanny state thing hasn't gone away. But there's this squeamishness as well, isn't there? It can look like wealthy people telling less wealthy people what they should be eating. Yes, and it's funny that that the only people who ever say that to me are relatively wealthy people. You're not telling people what to eat. You're recognising that they are in a food swamp. We've created this environment where it's very difficult to eat well, and we're all getting sick, and we need to create a better environment for our families and our children. I think the one area where there is genuine concern is at the moment the cost of living crisis It simply is the case that the cheapest foods are refined carbohydrates, refined vegetable fats, refined sugars. And if you are struggling with the cost of living, it is easier to buy products that are largely made out of those things, which you know your kids will eat and cheaper than to buy vegetables. And then if your kids don't eat them, you you can't afford something else. Your book, Henry, is full of so many fascinating insights, and I do want to talk about some of them. Um, but I want to also, before I get on to that, ask you about the egg sandwich. <laughs> because I I eat quite a lot of egg sandwiches. I know people, I'm famous for eating bacon sandwiches, but actually I eat a lot of egg sandwiches. And you slightly put me off the egg sandwich. Are you trying to reclaim your narrative there, Ed? Yeah. No, I'm, I'm trying to. I, I, I'm afraid that I that Henry really rather put me off the old egg sandwich. It's harder to have a bad photo taken eating an egg sandwich. It's a, it's a more. I'm not sure that's necessarily oh, no, true. Like I, I could dribblage. disprove that. <laughs> I could I could disprove that, but it's more. It's less about the photo and more about what's in the egg sandwich. Go on, tell us a little bit because you go into this in your there's old chapter on it. So there is a lot of uh, talk at the moment about ultra processed food and whether foods that have been through a huge amount of processing are worse for us than other foods. And I start the chapter on ultra-processed foods, a chapter called The Anatomy of an Egg Sandwich. I was on a train from Cumbria to London, and I was just, I, I bought an egg sandwich, you know, something that if you make it at home has four or five ingredients, eggs, oil, mustard, wheat, yeast, you know, not much. And it had 32 ingredients on the back of it, this sandwich. And I looked at it, I thought, well, let's just, find out what's going on with one of these ingredients. And the le- I took one that was relatively un- uncontested, rapeseed oil. Now, it turns out that the rapeseed oil that y- you or I would normally buy from a supermarket chemically has very little resemblance to the rapeseed oil that you would squeeze out of a, a rapeseed. Uh, you basically take it, you heat it, you crush it, you bleach it, you pass it through a, a kind of clay cake that, that was used to make World War I gas masks. All of these things are to make it to turn something that is stronger flavored, colorful, and goes off over quite a long time. It goes off into something that is colorless, flavorless, and will last forever. And so the question then is, so if you look at that egg sandwich that you would eat, if you were to, if you were to, try and look at the kind of the molecular level of that egg sandwich. It would look very similar at a kind of fat, carbohydrate, protein level. It would look very different at a micronutrient level. And then the question is, does that matter? And increasingly, the 
answer seems to be it does matter. Because we love the food that's high in fat and sugar, a lot of the ultra-processed food in packets is high in fat and sugar. And it has ratios of uh, sugar to carbohydrate to oil that don't appear in food cooked from scratch. So subtly different ratios. So that's true of packaged sandwich. That is true of the packaged sandwich. I mean, imagine a world, Jeff, where you could make your own, where you could go into a shop and make oh, your own sandwich. Oh, no, I knew he'd bring it round to this, Henry. Ed, Ed has got this idea for a business that is a make-your-own-sandwich chain so it's not like subway where you go in and say what you want on your sandwich but you're getting your hands in there i say it is a, it's a hygiene it's hygiene minefield my sister-in-law has uh, a business idea which is that at, at birth everyone should be given a full set of tupperware and that you should keep by the state <laughs> and that you should keep that tupperware for life and i think that's i think those two ideas fall into a similar category of uh, <laughs> likelihood to be successful. I'm going to get in contact with your sister-in-law. Honestly, I think we could... Yeah, because you could then take... You could make your sandwich and put it in your yeah, state's in- Tupperware. <laughs> exactly. I think we could... Honestly, I think we could do great things together. And you're going to... You're going you're gonna to regret not investing in it, you two. <laughs> but let me tell you... Let me tell you about Kevin Hall, because I wanted to yeah. finish this story about this sandwich that you're eating. Yeah. So Kevin Hall, who's a physicist, who thought, this is nonsense, this ultra-processed food stuff... He got group, two groups of people. He put he he locked them up effectively with their consent for four weeks. He put them in loose fitting clothes, so they couldn't really tell uh, if they were putting on weight or not. And he fed them these ultra processed foods for four weeks and food food cooked from scratch for four weeks. He balanced them for nutrients, so the macronutrients. They liked the, the two kinds of diets similarly. When they were eating the ultra processed food was laid out like a buffet, like every day was a wedding in this facility. So it was laid out like a buffet. They ate what they wanted to eat. On the ultra-processed food, they ate 500 more calories a day and put on a kilo of weight. And really interestingly, their ghrelin hormone, which is what makes you hungry, was elevated. And their GLP-1 hormone, which is what makes you full, was declined. So there is clearly something that is going on with this food that is making us overeat it. What we don't know, there is probably something else going wrong, but we don't know yet. But there's probably a way in which it's reacting with the microbiome, and it's probable that it's reacting in a bad way with that as well. After the war, the biggest problem we had was that we were going to grow from 2.5 billion people to 8 billion people. We wouldn't have the planet, enough land to feed them. Companies created this extraordinary farming system we have now, which produces twice the number of calories per person off off the same amount of land. They process the food to make it easy to buy, to make it cheap. And now it turns out it's killing us. And they are stuck. I mean, that's the they are really stuck, these companies, because their whole commercial model is built around creating products that actually in the long run are going to seriously undermine our society if we don't don't do something about it. So we need government intervention. We need bravery. Funnily enough, I think one of the people who gets this, so Tony Blair was talking the other day about smoking and about how everyone told him that this was electorally disastrous. Everyone's going to hate it. It's nanny state. And, you know, they banned smoking on buses, then in restaurants, then in public places. Yeah, in public places. And and the response was, Oh my God, thank you. You know, thank you. No, everyone's like, I can't believe we did it. 
I think it's slight. I mean, I, I don't necessarily disagree with you, but it's slightly different because the, the, the argument on pubs and clubs was the sort of passive smoking was the thing, it, 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 you know. But interestingly, on things like the advertising of junk food to children, the ways in which you, you don't ban it, you, you change the commercial incentives. So people feel, parents feel, absolutely it's the same thing. You are creating pester power for my child. There was a, a journalist the other day who tweeted a picture of, he said, this is the cereal in Sainsbury's that is at my child's head height. And it was Nestle's Kit Kat cereal and Crave, which is Kellogg's. And that was, to me, the junk food cycle in one photo. Two huge companies competing for the attention of this guy's daughter with products that were unbelievably unhealthy for them. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Let's talk about your experience in government, Henry, because I think it is quite sort of fascinating. So you went from establishing Leon, you published a school food plan 2014, an independent review for government, uh, and then you became a non-executive director at DEFRA, and then you were given the role of doing a national food strategy. Just talk to us about that national food strategy experience. Well, interesting. They are two very different jobs. On the non-exec thing, it was fascinating. I was there during my period of five years. We marched the government up to Brexit, no deal, and down again four times, the department, which was a huge bit of work. We had then had covid we then had the war. I operated under five secretaries of state and four prime ministers. And so the ability to get anything deeply systemic done in that environment was very, very difficult. And then talk to us about the food strategy then. So we, we published it in July 2021. Boris Johnson was doing a big speech that day and it completely the food strategy took over the the grid it took over the the headlines he was asked what he thought one of our recommendations was a, a salt and sugar reformulation tax he said i'm not in favor of uh you know 
additional taxes on hardworking people, but to which I was like, yeah, nor am I. It's a reformulation tax. It works slightly differently. The narrative was that they, they ditched the whole thing. What's actually happened is there were kind of three elements to it. There was how do you support the diets of those in poverty? And thanks to Marcus Rashford, who campaigned for a whole bunch of those things, quite a lot of that has been done. And the biggest thing the government's done is the holiday activity and food programs. If you are now a child eligible for free school meals, you can get that during the holidays, which is huge. The second piece was the environmental piece. And how do we create a farming system that restores biodiversity, sequesters carbon, produces enough food? So on one hand, the government is doing these incredibly difficult farming reforms, which are going in the right direction. And I very much hope that if Labour get in the next government, they will, I think they probably will continue that. But on the other hand, you had Liz Truss, who did the crazy Australian trade deal. Who, who banned you from attending meetings? Who banned me from... Well, I did, she banned me from attending meetings, yeah. Badge of honour. So um, she rang me quite a lot on the weekends leading up, saying, you've got to support this deal. Her view was all trade is good, right? She's very ideological. And I said, well, I just don't see how you can, with the one hand, expect your farmers to produce food to a certain standard and then do a trade deal that allows people producing to a lower standard to undercut them. It just didn't, doesn't make sense to me. And, and, and she got bored of me saying that. So I got banned from meetings. Anyway, so on that, so on poverty, they've done a bit. On environment, they're kind of slightly, you know, they are conflict, internally conflicted. And then on health, they've gone backwards. So Boris Johnson, you, you might remember after his time in, in ICU, he came out and said, right, we're going to get, we're going to get this country healthy again. I've realized that my diet related issues almost made me die. We're going to do the advertising ban, et cetera, et cetera. And that has gone backwards. And that is deeply ideological. There's a, a set of backbenchers who threaten to cause an uprising if they bring these things through. But anyone sensible and looking at the thing knows, as I said at the beginning, everyone knows that unless you do something about this, it's going to cause huge problems down the line. Just on the question of balanced diets, I think you talk very well in the book about the challenges of inequality and the challenges of it's just the, 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 you know, the simplistic, you have a sort of exchange with somebody who says it is actually much cheaper to buy vegetables. And you're like, well, hang on a minute. You know, not if you live in certain areas without the right places, you know, it's, it's a very partial account of it. And then you have very compelling testimony from somebody who was on your food task force uh, about it. Someone who I think a single parent. Daisy Stemple. Yeah. Amazing. Daisy's amazing one. Yeah. I think it's quite important for our listeners because I, I, it, it avoids very much a kind of, you know, sort of middle-class preaching type of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, so I, on the poverty issue, I had obviously, I was very aware of never having been anywhere close to budget on food in my childhood being an issue. I was very lucky for two things. One was Daisy Stemple, who I who had, you, I met in, in Thanet because she'd, I'd been to visit a food bank in Thanet and she'd been a previous client and I talked to her a lot and I said, look, will you come on my advisory panel? And the advisory panel had supermarket CEOs, farmers, et cetera. And I said, look, I think we need someone from, you know, who's lived this to come on. And it was, she was brilliant. It was extraordinary seeing her just explain what was actually going on. So people would say, and this was a very distinguished economist who I've been talking to separately who said, you know, if I look at 
the cost of things. A, a large bag of peas and budget chicken is cheaper per calorie than the cheapest pizza. And, you know, he kind of makes this argument that you could cook from scratch. And she would go, well, hold on. I don't have a freezer. My fuel budget was a concern. So I was worried about, and this would be, this is a much bigger issue now than, than then. We did a lot of discussion in food banks, which is if I create the healthy stuff and my children don't eat it, I don't have the money to give them something else. The nearest supermarket was quite a long bus drive away. And I had to pick my kids up. So that logistically was difficult. And funny enough, at the end of her testimony, she says, luckily, my mum was a hippie. So I, I had very high level cookery skills. So I kind of just about managed. But but she saw other people there who didn't have that luxury of having a mum who gave them cookery who really, really struggled. She was always in this tension between doing the right thing and maybe it running out of money. So I just think that this idea of lived experience that people talk about, it's very hard to understand how people's lives work in theory. And it's impossible with people's lives to theorize about what they might be like, look like. You always get things wrong. And I was very lucky to have Daisy and others who kind of helped me. And that's why I put it, that's why I put it in her voice. So I didn't try and write it. I just put the email that she sent me about it. You talk quite a lot about meat alternatives. How much of a danger is there that in the meat alternative sphere, we end up with processed foods just like we do at the moment? Uh, hi. So, um, but my, my view is that there are two transitions. So for our health, we need to eat about 30% more fruit and veg and about 50% more fiber. Those are the two biggest things we could all do for, for our health. Meat eating is about the environment. So we simply, there is, it, it's not about health. I mean, it's a little bit about health, but not really. It's not about methane even, it's about land. Currently, the animals we, we rear to eat, and we kill 80 billion of them every year, weigh twice as much as all the humans on the planet and 20 times as much as all the wild animals, land or invertebrates. They're just too much. 85% of the land that we use to feed us is used to rear animals or grow food to feed to animals in the UK. So my argument was, given that 50% of the meat we eat is already used in processed food, so it's used in the form of mince. It's not served like roast cooked from scratch. We have to make a transition to cooking more from scratch, to getting rid of the processed foods for our health. But it is, while they are there, I think the opportunity to use them to reduce meat eating is too good to be missed. In the book, I wrote about goujons of hope. So I wrote about these chicken goujons I was sent from America, which are fake chicken goujons. And I opened them up in, in the family household. But at the time... My daughter was vegetarian. My middle son only ate meat and fruit, like some kind of tech billionaire, you know, <laughs> caveman diet. And my eldest son ate everything. And I gave these chicken nuggets out to them, and they, all of them, wolfed them. I mean, it was terrifying. Like, they must have eaten 10, 12 nuggets each. And I was like, I'm not going to bring, you know, I'm not going to bring those to the house again. So that's a really good example. Those chicken nuggets involved a lot less animal cruelty than real chicken nuggets. The, you know, the River Wye wasn't polluted in their creation, but they clearly had that, that Moorish 
junk food thing to them. It's ter- when you see it, you know it. It's the you know, Pringles. Even used to they, they've stopped. They've taken it off. They they, they literally used to say. Uh, once you pop, you can't stop. You know, they made a virtue of the fact that literally these things were irresistible. So in other words, meat, meat alternatives um, might might not be where you want to end up, but they're a good way of getting people there. The, the answer, you know, people say, is there an answer? It's like, well, is there an answer? And the answer is lentils, you know. <laughs> so but people if, don't want to hear that answer. If, if everyone ate more legumes, they would be much healthier. What's your favourite lentil dish, Henry? Inspire us about lentils. So my wife has started making a shashuka. It's not lentils, but it's um, she makes a shashuka with, uh, with black beans in it, in the tomato and pepper mix, and it's really delicious. I mean, I confess I had a very bad experience, which Jeff knows about, with a black bean soup, which is sort of, which got the massive thumbs down from Justine. Maybe I'll get your wife's recipe for black bean shasuka. It's really good. Can I ask you a question, Meds, as we sort of draw to a close, which is, I'm very struck listening to you that you must have been on quite a journey in the 19 years since you set up Leon. Please don't take this in a, in a negative way, but... I mean, has this whole experience quite radicalised you about the need for big, quite big fundamental change? Yeah, I, I'm a completely accidental campaigner. So Leon, John and I set it up because we wanted to eat nicer food, fast food on the go, where we could only eat delicious Kentucky Fried Chicken that made us feel terrible afterwards, or the kind of cold, soggy, neon-lit Egg chili sandwich. cabinets full of sandwiches. Yeah. And so that, and that was it. That's all, you know, we just wanted to come. And, and then, yeah. as you say, you get in there and you begin to see things. I remember my wife saying after she'd had our, she, she had a particularly gruesome medieval labor with our first child. And she said that she wanted, when she came out into London fields afterwards, the first time she came out, she wanted to go up to people and shake them and said, don't you know what happens? Why? How can you all... How can you all be walking around as if you don't know that women go off and have these medieval experiences? Why aren't we talking about this? And that was really, it got to the stage. When you think that the food we eat is going to bring down the health service and destroy our economy, and at the same time, it is by far the biggest cause of biodiversity collapse. It's the second biggest cause of climate change. I accidentally got filled up with that. And then I became the person going up to, you know, this book is going up to the person saying, look, don't you see? You know, if you think about The Sun had an editorial after Boris Johnson scrapped the advertising ban, which said, I'm glad to see this. We need more common sense measures like educating people and exercise. And like that is what most people, that is why most people think that we are, that they are sick, actually, if you ask them that they're sick from food, it's because they're lazy and stupid. And it's just not true. And when you see the fact that it's not that, it's because the commercial incentives to make us sick are so huge that that's what the food industry does. Well, look, Henry, it's been an absolute pleasure um, to talk to you. Really, really fascinating. The book is Ravenous, How to Get Ourselves and Our Planet into Shape. It's by Henry Dimbleby with Jemima Lewis, and it is out now. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. 
Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Thank you for listening to this summer cheerful conversation. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer is our content producer, supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made our eye dents and our artwork was designed by... Henry Cull. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And this has been... Summer Lovin'. Reasons to be cheerful. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.